For most of us, the celebration of Christmas is pretty much about us. You know, we we think about Christ coming into the world to redeem us. And we think about what Christ has meant in our lives and in our family and the people that we know and we're connected to. And, and that's good. I mean, that, that's, that's right, because it's true. Christ has come to be very personal with us, each one of us. And we meet Christ in a very personal way, and it's important to do that. But somewhere along the line, the, the focus and, and the, the central thrust of Christmas has gotten turned just a little bit. So that it's not just about what Christ is doing for us, it's that... All of it is really about us. When we we celebrate Christmas in the way that we like, and and that's okay, but sometimes we then look at others and say, well, they don't do it right. You know, I I often talk to couples about this in premarital counseling. I say to them, look, the way you celebrate holidays, for instance, what your family has done is what you view as normal. And that may not be what everyone else does. And when you two get together... There's going to be some conflict about what exactly is normal. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that, but sometimes that does happen. And, you know, it's one of those things that you just don't realize how ingrained you are until someone else comes into the picture. But somewhere along the line, as we embrace Christmas for ourselves and what Christ means for us... There is a twist, there is a turn that needs to take place so that we understand that it's not only about us. But that Christmas and Christ coming into our world and coming into our lives is about others as well. This is certainly what we see in John the Baptist. As we look at, at John's as we look at John's life, and particularly these first interactions here in the beginning of the gospel we see a completely different perspective about the coming of Christ. Verses 6 to 8 make a couple of things very clear. John realizes that his task from God is to point people to Jesus in such a way that they believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that no matter what people may say or encourage him to be or to do, John emphatically declares that he is not the light. Now, most of us faced with an opportunity for fame and recognition would find it a bit of a struggle to just turn that down flat and defer to others. As verse 19 unfolds, you get the feeling that this delegation of Jewish leaders who come to investigate John ask him, So John, are you the guy? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? That's a legitimate question because here is John out preaching, baptizing in the wilderness. And the wilderness for for us tends to have a connotation of desolation. But when you read the scriptures, you find that the Jewish mindset is that the wilderness also has a strong sense of blessing. It is in the wilderness that God meets Moses. It's in the wilderness that God meets Israel. It's in the wilderness that God meets Elijah. And many, many events between God and his people take place in the wilderness. And so in in the Jewish mindset, there was a sense of even connecting the wilderness with messianic expectations. Sort of seen for some people like a second exodus. That God, as he brought his people out of Egypt and freed them and redeemed them, that when the Messiah comes, the same thing is going to happen. And it will maybe come out of wilderness. And so 
here is John connected to the wilderness. Isaiah says the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. And they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The wilderness will be made new when the Messiah comes. And there are people flocking to John, thinking maybe he's the one. And he's become somewhat of a celebrity. He definitely has had some amazing spiritual experiences. And this is heady stuff. It would be easy for John to say, well, I'm not the guy. I don't think I'm the guy. Maybe I am the guy. There's a lot of good stuff happening. Well, I don't know. Do you think I'm the guy? Maybe I am. You can see how easily you get wrapped up into that. And even if he isn't thinking he's the Messiah, it would be pretty difficult not to become absorbed in his own publicity, his fame, his success. We're pretty good, pretty susceptible at believing our own press and believing the things people tell us. You know, we, people tell us how much we've helped them. People tell us how significant we've been to them. And pretty soon we kind of see ourselves as sort of messiahs. But John doesn't succumb to that. It's not because he isn't human. He's just so focused on his life with God. His firm grasp on his life is about getting people's attention so that they will clearly see he is pointing to Christ. Verse 20 makes it so clear. He did not fail to confess. He confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. The message has that he was completely honest. He didn't evade the question. He told the plain truth, I am not the Messiah. And though John categorically denies that he is the one they've been looking for, been waiting for, at the same time, he makes it very clear that his role is to point everyone to the one they've been looking for. Even as John emphatically pushes himself away from the place of honor... He just as emphatically declares that his life and his ministry is about one thing, pointing people to Christ. You know, too often we think of Christmas just about us. Jesus gives us what we want. Jesus comes to fill my life with joy. Jesus is for me, and that's true, and it's good. But it can quickly and subtly shift to my journey with Jesus is really about me. Getting what I want, experiencing him in the way that I like best, trying to get everyone else to see things my way. I've had this great experience with Jesus, and you should have it too. And if you don't have the same experience that I have, then you're probably not as spiritual as I am. Instead of pointing people to Christ, we give people the impression that it's really about us. But John's so clear the coming of Christ is not about him. It's about Jesus. And somehow as followers of Christ, we've made the coming of Christ maybe more about us. The problem is we, we talk as though it's about Christ, but sometimes our actions and our behaviors don't always follow up those words. I don't know if you saw the article in the Buffalo News earlier this week. It was also on a number of, of news sites about, the, about Rhode Island Governor Chafee, who referred to the 17-foot spruce tree in, in, the, uh, in the state building as a holiday tree. And it didn't go over very well with a lot of people. One man's response was, he's trying to put our religion down. It's a Christmas tree. It always has been. It always will be, no matter what that buffoon says it is. 
One of the local churches said they were so frustrated that they said they're going to have their own tree lighting ceremony down the street at their church, a large church, down the street on the same day, same night, same time as the governor's tree lighting to compete against it. That a talk show host called for people to get together at the state house during the lighting ceremony and to sing Christmas carols in protest of what he called Governor Grinch. And they did. The Christmas carolers came and they sang, of course, Oh Christmas Tree. <laughs> the, the problem is they started singing right in the middle of the song that a children's chorus was singing. They had a children's chorus there and they were providing the music. And this group of carolers, I don't know how many of them, but it sounded like a pretty good number of them came in. And they just started singing Oh Christmas Tree and interrupted, crashed in on these children who were singing. You can imagine that the responses were pretty strong. I saw one site that said, people said, so do the selfish carolers who interrupted the children's chorus think they were demonstrating the true spirit of Christmas? They show their hypocrisy with this behavior. One person wrote about Christians jumping up and down like spoiled children. Another said, unfortunately this year, I will not be extending holiday wishes to anyone. I'm actually afraid if I say happy holidays and they happen to be Christian, I might end up with an insulting comment directed at me or maybe a fist if I've irritated them enough. It's like the response that I heard from many people a couple of years ago when Walmart instructed their employees to greet people with happy holidays. And people were threatened to boycott of Walmart and, and they threatened to demonstrate and they told people, go in there, when they say that to you, get right in their face and say, it's Merry Christmas. You know, it's just really obnoxious kind of behavior. And all of it in the name of saving Christmas. Now, I wish the governor just called it a Christmas tree. He probably does too at this point. Uh, and he let it go. And I wish the stores would just say to their employees, greet people however you feel Uh, comfortable doing and sometimes we have to take a stand for things that are vital and are in the best interest of society as a whole but i can't help but believe that despite what the carolers claim and despite what the people who are going to boycott claim these responses really seem more about me than about christ that the underlying motivation for this uproar is really not defending christ as if any of us could actually do that But anger, defensiveness, feeling offended. And when that's our motivation, we're never going to point people to Christ. We're too worried about ourselves. I mean, how can behavior that looks so unlike Christ ever lead people to truly see Christ? If it doesn't look like Christ, then our behavior really can't be about Christ. With John, everything is about Christ. And we know this because everything John says and does is about deflecting attention from himself and on to Jesus. John doesn't care about the conversations that people are having about him. He just wants them to talk and think about Jesus. Even after John denies being the Messiah, these religious leaders, these these people with great power to make or break someone's career, give him the opportunity to claim to be one of the great prophets And the intriguing thing is, John says, no, I'm not. But actually, I think he is. And maybe he knows that he is. Maybe he doesn't know. But if he does know, it wouldn't surprise me that he says, that's not me. Because the minute he says, that's me, now the attention's back on him. And he is so concerned that the attention be on Christ that he isn't even willing to take 
take the claim for what he probably has been given to do by God. He is so humble, he won't take it. Because John isn't concerned about people knowing who he is. He wants them to know who Christ is. And as I read that and I think about that, I am far too often, I far too often feel guilty about my motives. About what I do and why I do it. And maybe you do as well. So the question is, how do we point to Christ? How do we point people to Jesus? I think for one thing, we have to acknowledge that pointing people to Christ is our calling. The responsibility, the privilege of being a follower of Christ. There is no doubt that John has a very special place in God's plan of redemption. And we are not John and we're not going to have that place. But we are, however, called to the task of pointing people to Christ. Whether we like it or not, that's our calling. And we don't always like it because it is demanding. Sometimes we feel like the famous people who say, I'm not going to be a role model. I'm not a role model. But the truth is, whether they want to be or not, they are a role model because they're famous. People watch them and people mimic them. And as Christians, we point people to something. Either we point them to Christ or we point them away from Christ to us. But we can't get away from this calling to be pointers. So what does the pointing to Christ look like? Like John, we use our words to draw attention to Christ. When people are in need, we speak kindly to them. We care for them. We remind people of how much Christ cares and that Christ is present. For people who who don't understand Christ, we try to dispel the ideas, the false ideas that so often are in people's minds and, and try to help them understand the truth about Christ and who he really is and why he's come in the first place. I was thinking about that and, and I think Isaiah 61, a passage that, that Jesus reiterates in Luke 4, seems to summarize his mission so clearly. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. What a beautiful image of why Christ comes. But a lot of people don't get that. They don't understand that Christ comes to redeem, to bless, to bring joy and all the fullness of God into our hearts and our lives. But our witness can't be limited to words. Our actions have to match our words. In fact, our actions give credibility to our words. So we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We give up our rights so that others might know the love of Christ. We refuse to respond in defensiveness and selfishness. We refuse to turn on others even when they turn on us. We act in ways that are consistent with the ways in which Christ lives. Maybe for many of us, most of our interactions with people are with people who are already followers of Christ. But it doesn't minimize the need to keep pointing each other to Christ. People are in difficult circumstances. We come to them. We sit with them. 
We care for them. We love them. We become a place where people will have a place where people can talk and share their burdens and find someone who will pray with them and love them instead of pushing them away. When someone's questioning God and, and God's presence in their life, do we get defensive? Do we feel offended? Or do we gently lead them to the grace and the mercy of Christ? What is it about our lives, the way we respond to people who disappoint us, the way we react to people who offend us, the way we speak to people who may disparage us? What is it about our lives that points people to Jesus rather than us? Actually, pointing people to Christ is it's just sort of more of a way of life than anything else. It is how we worship God. You know, we, we tend to... To think that worship is just coming together on Sunday morning, and that's certainly a part of it, but worship is all the time, every day. If we come to Sunday worship and and we raise our hands in praise and we sing with all of our heart and we listen with all of our mind and we engage with all of our being and and we give everything we have to worship and then we go out from these doors and we live for ourselves all the rest of the time, then we don't understand worship and we certainly aren't pointing people to Jesus. Our attitude and how we live our lives is so significant. And the attitude that we see in John so clearly is humility. Humility doesn't make a person godly. But humility is one of the characteristics of godly people. And the representatives from Jerusalem come, they ask John, So why do you baptize if you aren't making claims about yourself? And John says, Because my life and what I do isn't about me It's about him. It's all about him. John is so humble, he says, he is not fit to untie the sandals of the one to come. You know, you have the spirit and the service of humility. In in ancient Palestine, you know, people walk around in sandals on dusty roads and your feet get dirty. When you come into the house, the, the lowest servant of the house has the job of getting down on his hands and knees and unstrapping the sandals and washing people's feet. It's a menial task. And John says, I'm not even worthy of doing that in the presence of the one to come. You can tell genuine humility Because it always leads to willingness to be a servant. Voluntary servanthood points people to Christ because it is so contradictory to most of how our culture thinks and lives and what our culture values. And we see it all the time. Yesterday was an interesting day in in the world of collegiate athletics. It was uh, the day when... uh, Army, the Army-Navy football game. You know, that game with so much history and tradition. It's just such a, a glorious, amazing event when those two academies come together to play. And last night, the uh, Heisman Trophy was awarded to the, the best college football player of the year. And yesterday afternoon, Indiana and Kentucky played their rival game in basketball And it went down to a last-second shot when the good guys beat Kentucky. (laughs) 
told someone this morning, I'm going to find a way to work that into the sermon. I don't know exactly how, but I'm going to find a way. But there was also a scene in Cincinnati. University of Cincinnati was playing Xavier University. They both are housed in Cincinnati. They're rivals. With nine seconds to go in the game, a bench-clearing brawl broke out. Some of you may have seen that. I mean, it was ugly. Lots of players are going to be suspended, I'm, I'm assuming. But what was most disheartening about all of that was the press conference afterwards and a couple of comments made by a couple of Xavier players. They said, we got disrespected a little before the game. Guys calling us out. We got a whole bunch of gangsters in the locker room, not thugs, but tough guys on the court. And we went up there and we zipped them up at the end of the game. If you come at us, we're going to come back at you. If you get tough with us, we're going to be tougher with you. We're not putting up with any of that kind of stuff. And there were all kinds of commentators who were, you know, on these guys and saying, boy, this should cause them to get suspended even more because they don't get it. They don't understand. And I'm thinking to myself, they're just mimicking the culture. I mean, they're just telling, they're just saying what everybody else does. You get cut off in traffic, you go cut them off. Somebody says something about you, you say something about them. That's the way our culture operates. That's, that's how things are done in this world in which we live. They're simply doing what they've seen done over and over and over again. It really shouldn't surprise us. But somehow, we are called to point to Christ in a different way. John points to Christ because he knows that only Christ has the ability to do anything about their needy lives and their empty hearts. John points even though he knows that as soon as the one he's pointing to arrives on the stage, John will be pushed off to the side. Which is exactly what happens. When Jesus begins his ministry, John's up here, Jesus is here. It isn't very long before it's switched. And I suspect many of us would be clamoring to try to get back up toward Jesus. But John says, no, I did what I came for. In fact, a couple of chapters later in John, he says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And that's exactly what happens. And John is ushered off the stage so that Jesus takes center. And John doesn't say a word about it. I think it's important to remember that the primary pointer to Christ is the church. Just as John points forward to Christ who is to come, the church points back to Christ who is yet to come, who has already come. And it's important to understand that though our pointing as individuals is necessary, and that's a big part of how we point people to Christ, we rise and fall together. You know, the, the church points to Christ together. You think about the, the events in, in Rhode Island. I don't think any of us were there. I don't think we had anything to do with that. But when you listen to people's comments, we're all lumped in together. Because the church is the church. And the church has the ability to point people to Christ or to point people on, in on itself away from Christ. And what people are looking for is a, is a church that has a sense of joy and peace 
the Spirit of Christ. A church where we can be honest with each other. We can be transparent with each other. And we can love each other and forgive each other. And even when we don't do with each other what we should do, we work it out and we deal with it. And somehow we we present to people, not us, but Jesus. And we, we let people know in every way we can that our life and our existence as a people is about Christ and Christ alone. When we get focused inward, then all of our attentions about the church... We become ingrown and selfish and arrogant and we live in denial about the truth. And we ignore Christ and so many people don't know about Christ. Our pointing to Christ is really living in the context of of all that Advent means and encompasses. Advent's about waiting. Actually, Advent's about waiting purposefully. Advent symbolizes the hundreds of years in which God's people wait for her Savior. And those years are not lost on them. They are years in which people who don't see or experience what they hope for continue to trust and hope and believe and obey. And they continue to surrender their lives to God. And their willingness to live with a sense of hope when everything around them screams of despair is a pointing to Christ. Their willingness to, to live a sense of joy when all of life is sorrow is a pointing to Christ. To live in obedience to God when that obedience seems to be going nowhere is a pointing to Christ. And Advent reminds us that living for Christ, pointing people to Christ by our attitudes and our words and our actions, even though the culture tells us we're crazy, even though the world ignores us, even though no one seems to get us, even though success as society defines it, isn't anything about us. It's still our calling. And it's leading us to be the people God has called us to be. I think that perhaps as Advent reminds us about waiting, maybe it's in waiting that we have the opportunity to most effectively point people to Jesus. Because it's in those times of waiting when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, when life takes turns that we don't want it to take, when situations arise that we want to ignore, when people mistreat us and nothing seems to happen, when we engage in life as waiting, how we respond to that will send a huge message about who we're really pointing toward. Are we trusting in Christ even if we can't see it? Are we trusting in God even when the answer doesn't come the way we want it? Are we trusting in Him even when life pushes us against the wall? People will often see more of Christ in those moments than any other time if we're willing to wait and trust and hope. Our role is not to save anyone. Our privilege, our responsibility is to point people to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Are our priorities individually and corporately pointing people to Christ? Are we as individuals and as a congregation pointing people to Christ when trouble comes? So that people who are going through difficult things look at us as a church, as people, and say, 
That's a place where I know people will love me and care for me. That's a place where I know I can find what I'm seeking because they're about Jesus. I don't understand it, but I know they have something that I don't have and I want it. John points people to Christ. It's the reason he exists. Are we pointing people to Christ as children of God? Heavenly Father, in this moment of silence, speak to us about where our lives are pointing, the priorities, the focus, the passion. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for Christ. In your grace and mercy, make us more effective at pointing people to Christ. And we ask this through his grace. Amen.